Take me to your leader. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about the ever-awaited and very exciting topic of leadership in the scene, which we've actually already attempted to record once, but I was so manic in the episode, <laughs> I blew out the mic on multiple occasions and might have been speaking so rapidly. Was even it you I, or was it my laugh blowing out the mic? That also happened. Sorry. Your joy destroyed joy our microphones. It's ruining the podcast. So <laughs> without further dudes, we're going to talk today in this Take Me to Your Leader, Episode 5, Part 1, all about the different rungs of leadership in the scene. Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the ideal of leadership versus what leadership actually ends up being in reality. So let's jump into this. Hello, and welcome to the K's for Kinky podcast. This podcast discusses adult topics, so if you are offended by adult topics or are under the age of 18, please stop listening now. Also, while Miss Jen is a therapist, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not to be taken as personal therapy for you. She is not your therapist. And if she is your therapist, just remember that what she says only technically counts in your private sessions. First of all, hello. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, Eden. Hi, Miss Jen. How are you <laughs> on this hello first. <laughs> fine October evening? It's actually the day. There's sunlight. It's too hot. It's October and it's too hot. Okay, Good. That's now the complaint for the day. <laughs> we've we've small talked. We've talked about the weather. I think we have, you know, eased we've lost, everyone. We've lost all of our introverted uh, listeners. They're all done. <laughs> um, so let's well, get. Oh, I, I figured we should start with explaining. For people who have no idea who we are, explaining kind of what we do in the scene that makes us some kind of leader. Yeah. Um, why don't you start since you're, you've been around longer than me? <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, as I've said before, other places, um, even after hosting stuff and doing things in the scene for close to a decade, if not a decade. It's still as weird, like, when people, you know, call me a leader or whatever. It just, I don't know, it's weird. And probably because it was not what I, it was not my focus when I started doing what I do, um, which all started ultimately when I had been in the scene for about eh, four years. And, you know, my whole thing was it's hard to find regular 101 type classes for somebody who's brand new and just wants to get started. And it was kind of like you had to just wait for them to randomly happen. And they were on various subjects. Um, and so I started the BDSM 101 class series just because it was like, what would I want when I first came into the scene? And can I offer that to other people? And so that became, you know, something that it was a four part, the core series was four classes. And I taught it every Monday for about eight years. Um, <clears throat> You know, even during the pandemic, we took pretty much most of it online. So that was where it all sort of started. And it was really just 
trying to fill a void that I felt was, was in the community and that I wish I'd had when I was new. Um, from there, you know, I started other stuff. The club awakening party for newbies was basically because I had new people coming to the one one series all the time going, what's a good party to start with. And I could offer up and say, Oh, this, these are just some general community play parties and they're probably fine. Nothing too extreme, but I didn't have any regular party that I could point to that was actually designed for new people. And so that's where club awakening came from. Um, and, you know, all the stuff since then. And now, you know, I've been doing the, the SoCal Polyam support group for like seven plus years. We might be coming up on eight years in February. Anyway, but that stuff and other parties that I've started that have either, you know, stopped. The or point is she's whatever. done a lot of leading. Yeah, a lot of stuff. And, I you know, do other classes and teach at DomCon and all that jazz. Um, so, yeah, like that's what I do in our community here in SoCal in the LA area. And then Eden, what do you lead? I, um, wow. I am really good at blowing out this microphone is what I'm doing. Um, you're a yeller. (laughs) I'm trying to see. So I have been helping Miss Jen, um, lead her, you know, stuff, her stuff for, a while now. Um, I definitely am in service to her at events, but I would definitely qualify what I do when I'm helping her host parties as being in a leadership position. Uh, I also run a support group called the S word. Um, and the S word is for people who are S type switches or exploring their kink identities. It's not for D types. Um, that's the only type of identifier that is not welcome in the group is D types. I'm sorry, D types. Um, but the point is she won't even let me in. I will not even let her in cause she's, she's not a switch. She's not exploring. She is a D type. Um, that's kind of my level of experience. I've also, um, helped to create the systems for and run and manage, um, a, a, a new dungeon. I did that for about a year as well. So I do have some experience there. Um, and of course we've created the high protocol revival, um, group, and that is also a new level of leadership. So both Ms. Jen and I have been leading in the scene, her for much longer than I have. And I would definitely say that my leadership um, is still in its infancy, but that's our personal background with leadership. So one thing I want to point out about the leadership that I just brought up is that Ms. Jen and I made decisions, you know, me starting the S word and us beginning the high protocol revival project. Those decisions were ones we made intentionally where we understood that we were putting ourselves into positions of leadership and we understood that we had obligations because we were taking on that mantle in those spaces. Um, However, I would argue that Miss Jen didn't necessarily process when she first started doing parties and munches and classes that she would be the level of leader that she is today. Um, And I most certainly did not know at first when I just started helping support Miss Jen pull off her parties, basically through volunteering and then through being in service to her. I didn't know that that would land me into a position where whether I liked it or not, I'd be seen in some capacity as a leader. Um, And this happens a lot in the scene where people 
decide to step up to run something and they kind of think of themselves in that capacity only. So they might be like, I'm going to open a munch. I have time. I have resources. I have energy. I'm going to start a munch and that's what I'm going to do. And they may or may not be processing the implications of what their responsibilities are as a leader the moment they start doing something like that. The same is true for classes, teachers, people who open dungeons. Like leadership can be sought intentionally, but it can also be gained accidentally. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they start something, they're like, just like I was, right? They're thinking, oh, I'll start a munch. Like, that's not, it's not a party. No play is going to happen. It should be, you know, drama free and no problems. It'll just be fun. I'll find a venue and I'll advertise and we'll show up and we'll, we'll have fun hanging out. And, (laughs) um, that is usually not exactly how it goes. Um, it's, you know, it's great, especially something like a munch. Again, there's no play involved. There, you are getting around certain things that could create problems. Um, but anytime you host anything with more than yourself, uh, you're opening up to the possibility of problems coming up, whether it's, you know, more serious issues um, somebody being predatory or less serious issues around not liking the restaurant you've chosen or whatever. Um, I think most people that start a thing, whatever that thing is, initially it's it's to create a great environment or it's to create a fun time. And if you haven't done it before, you don't necessarily see around that corner of what could also come up and become part of your responsibilities to deal with. Um, Before we go ahead and break down for you what we believe are the levels of leadership and added responsibility as you climb the leadership ladder, um, I want to talk briefly about the ideal of leadership and what we have in our brains of what we want our leaders to be versus the reality of what we have. Um, So I'm going to paint a picture. The ideal leader is somebody who got to that point because they have been in service to the community for so long um, that the community recognizes them as a leader because they have earned that title. The ideal leader gives of themselves beyond the scope of their job. A true leader is fair-minded. A true leader stands up for what is right. A true leader holds boundaries, states them clearly, and enacts consequences when consequences are due. And an ideal leader is not corrupt and is not in the position because they want to exploit the position. Also, ideally, leaders would be trained before climbing the ladder, so each new rung would add in more training. Leaders would have support in the form of like a larger structure of other leaders, like almost like a council of leaders, if you will. But leaders would have support um, and leaders would have ways of being held accountable by the community and by leaders. There would be a system in place to check leaders who are exploitative. You know, I mean, ideally there would be none, but let's say that semi-ideally, if there are exploitative leaders, there would be a structure in place to catch them and to deal with them and potentially weed them out. Um, Also, ideally, leaders would be paid and compensated fairly for the time that they give. These are all the ideals. Now, what I am describing in this ideal world would require um, almost like a business structure, right? Like we would need 
HR, essentially, we would need classes and education that trained leaders. There'd have to be some sort of like organized way of weeding through leaders and getting titles. I mean, I'm describing a world that ideally is wonderful, but that just can't exist with the way that kink is right now. Well, we're a peer run community. Yeah. Essentially. So also all volunteer based. Like, for the most part, part, most of your leaders, if they're making money, it's a fraction of what they're actually do in terms of the hours they put in. Um, Even your dungeon owners, to an extent, aren't making as much money as you think. Um, But let's move on from that into the reality. The reality is, as we go through this ladder, you'll see that any person can climb the ladder. This is both a good thing and a horrible thing, right, Miss Jen? Um, well, yes, depending on the climber. Yes, depending on the climber, this is a very bad thing. Um, there is no formal training for leaders. There is some training that leaders can have. It is possible, even in a world that's not perfect, for a leader to get to the position they're in because they've served the community and are recognized. It's also possible for somebody to buy their way into leadership. I've seen that happen, too. Um, and it's possible that people are corrupt and they are exploitative and they are there for themselves. And because they have money or because they have resources, they're still going to have a certain following and they're still going to have a certain amount of power. All of those things are the reality. The reality is there is no financial reimbursement that comes close to what leaders actually put out in terms of energy. There is no council of support. Um, leaders have each other to lean on, but not every leader is part of a system like that. And it's not always easy to know who to trust. Um, so leaders don't have the support that you think they do. They don't have the training that they ought to have. Some of them do and some of them don't, but there is nothing in place to ensure that they get the training. Right, Ms. Jen? I mean, it, it's the same down the line of, you know, vetting as well as you can. Yeah. But that's kind of all we have in place besides just actual if people have actual credentials you know from the vanilla world it's kind of like in a in a world where there is no regulation you can make yourself into anything you want to be and while that's beautiful because it's basically a blank check um it's also dangerous um so that's the reality um in terms of the resources leaders actually have at their disposal and also the type of person that can step into this position so let's get into this ladder Before we go into the ladder, we want to make sure it's clear that the ladder does not denote importance or value. It simply gives information of more added responsibility. I also wanted to clarify that we do have the very first rung of this ladder as participant, but what we really should have just called this generically was newbie and listening to it back we realized that that would have been better so when you hear us use the word newbie or or participant in this podcast they are interchangeable um and participant as used by us here does indicate a new participant um sometimes we just didn't qualify it like that we have gone ahead and constructed a ladder um starting from the very bottom with people who are just walking into the scene for the first time and ending at people who own dungeons. So we're going to climb this ladder together with you on the podcast today. So the first rung of this ladder are participants. Um, Participants are people who walk into the scene for the very first time. They've never been in a dungeon before. We've all been there. We've all been a participant. Um, We've all been a newbie. And 
I think it's fair to say that when it comes to level of responsibility, participants have very little. They are responsible for themselves and their own personal behavior. Um, I think a participant, even if they're brand new, should have done some research before stepping foot into a dungeon, right? So they need to have figured out what the word BDSM means most likely before they come in. Some basic protocols would be good. Yeah, learning some basic protocols. Just doing an internet search of first time in dungeon. Like, I expect newcomers to have done a little bit of work but beyond that as long as they're following the playground rules of don't touch people and things that are yours, yours is mine and what's mine is mine no that's your rules oh okay. that's not the playground <laughs> rule see this is the problem this is a bad participant everyone bad um but participants are an important part of the community because they're where we all start we all at one point we were all participants right I also think that it's fair to say that participants are not leaders, not yet, at least. Um, but they can be held responsible for their own personal behavior. Right on the similar rung or like the baby rung above this would be a consumer. So I like to talk about consumers before we go into community members because a consumer is different from a community member. Um, and here's why I say that. A consumer is somebody who participates in the scene and who drops by occasionally to do a party or maybe even a class, but they're not active in the community. Um, they're more of a tourist. They're just stopping by to, as their name suggests, consume the scene. And while this might sound bad, it's actually good because consumers are part of what keeps the scene afloat financially. It's good that there are consumers in the scene. But a consumer's level of responsibility, I feel, differs from a community member because the consumer is not actually part of the community. They're not looking to build community. They're just there for the show. They're just there for the moment or for the indulgence. And then they're going to go back into their vanilla or like typical life and the scene will just be there for them when they want to check back in periodically. Um, consumers have similar levels of responsibility to a participant. Um, I would just add on to that. If you're a consumer and you're around in the scene, you need to know the rules. That part you need to know. And I expect consumers to learn the rules and the protocols of this community um, and of this culture. Um, whereas a newbie, I would hope they've done some research. I can forgive a newbie or a brand new participant for not knowing a lot. But if you're a consumer and you've been around, you don't get as much leeway, in my opinion. Um, but now Ms. Jen's going to talk about the rung above consumer, which is community member. Ah, community members. Um, I would say this is hopefully the majority of what we see in the scene. Um, obviously, those who are brand new or consuming are sometimes going to be sort of in and out. Uh, they might come to a bunch of stuff and then take a break for a while, or they you know, might just kind of occasionally do a party here and there. Um, a community member, though, is somebody who really gets involved uh, to, like, the next level. So they are going to classes or parties or attending munches as often as they can. They're meeting people. They're creating friendships and other types of relationships possibly as well. Um but they're not just looking at it to, you know, what can I get from this? They're also looking at creating bonds and connections um, within the community as well. I would add for community members 
that they are going to be known in the scene. Like, it's going to be easier to vet a community member than a consumer or a new participant because they'll actually have left a trail. They'll actually have friends and people they've encountered. They'll have encountered. <laughs> they will have relationships in the scene. Um, and they'll be able to also hopefully be a good source to vet others. So community members are known and they know. They are known by others and they know more than an average person coming in. Um, they're also going to probably know the organizers because they'll frequent their events. Um, and they're just going to be more active, as you mentioned, more active. Yeah. And that's good with the vetting part. You know, it's it's can be a red flag if you're vetting somebody and they there's not much of a trail there. You know, they go to a few classes here and there, but they don't really connect with people. And therefore, there's nobody that really knows them. Um, you know, it's why I tell people that are new, don't just go to all four different munches that you can get to in a month, go to the same ones that you enjoy every month, because you're going to actually people, you're not only going to meet more people, but people will start to recognize you, you will go from that status of consumer or newbie to, oh, you are another member of this community who I recognize. Um, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely a, a big difference. The way that leadership interacts with community majorly impacts how the community feels. Um, and I would also argue that the way the community treats consumers and new participants changes how big our community gets to be. Because if community members are unkind to newbies or they are... Um, unkind to consumers, we could lose potential community members because everybody starts off as one of those two things. And the community does actually grow, but it also shrinks on a, on a yearly basis. We lose people, we gain people. Um, I think that a community member has added responsibility to be as kind as possible to newcomers, especially if you can tell they don't have the resources yet to know better. If they're a consumer, they've been around for a while, you know, you have to judge that for yourself. But I think the, the default should be kindness and trying to offer resources and, and I don't know, um, nice correction versus judgmental shaming corrections. Correcting with kindness, as I like to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, so I think community owes themselves and everybody below the ladder and above the ladder. Uh, uh, what am I saying? Community owes kindness and community owes teamwork. Um, and as far as what community owes leadership, I think community should try, community members should try their best to solve their own issues and to work on their own selves before getting leadership involved. I think that leaders should be utilized when there's a problem that has gone far beyond what a community member can actually um, handle alone. Um, but it's really important to me that community members are aware of the resources their leaders do and don't have. Um, because I think that that's also part of the responsibility there to understand the burdens on your leader or on your leader on the, on the leadership um, and to understand what leadership actually owes you and what they don't owe you, what they might give you out of kindness, but what, what you're not entitled to. And I think that's something that we don't talk about a lot with community members. We talk often about what community members should be given in terms of leadership, but not what they should give to their leadership. 
Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there. It, it might get edited out. I don't know if it sounds too brr, old manny, but. Well, and I think in it's a good segue to the next rung of the ladder, volunteers. Um, and, you know, when it comes to volunteers, there's a couple different types. Um, when you volunteer for stuff, there's kind of the, uh, even if you're actually out on the floor, I'm going to call it like the behind the scenes volunteers that, you know, are helping with setting up an event or breaking down an event or washing the dishes in the kitchen or taking out the trash in the middle of the event, you know, all that kind of stuff that is so appreciated um volunteers <laughs> you are our heroes yes. the unsung heroes of every event are the volunteers for sure um so there's there's that kind of volunteer um there's also the kind of volunteer that i utilize a lot for two of my parties which are um booth runners and so these are volunteers who are actually <clears throat> representing a hard skill and in terms of my party is teaching people either, you know, short lessons on how to do those skills or giving people um, tasters of that thing, whatever it is, that, that implement or what have you. Um, and there's a bit more responsibility, I would say, for those volunteers. Well, I mean, so here's the thing. That wasn't a question, by the way. I just had a burp. Oh, I thought you were asking me a question. You even raised your eyebrows, but I guess that's your burp face. Um, I'm so glad we caught this on the podcast. Um, what's cool about being a volunteer is that it's it's a level for community members to step into that has a lot less responsibility than actually running an event or generating like a munch or something like that. It's a way for community members to be more involved and to also kind of see the behind the scenes. I, I will say... I started off my kinky career working behind the scenes and volunteering. Um, and I now, of course, I'm in service to you officially. So, I mean, I'm not so much volunteering now as I am owing you my service happily, though. I love I love helping out with events. Um, but volunteering is a really great way to actually meet more active members of your community and to get to know your leadership. Um, it's a good way to form bonds of friendship and just letting you know, most volunteers are allowed into the event for free. So if, if it's, ex I mean, frankly, the scene is expensive. Parties are expensive. For those of us who are, you know, barely making ends meet, it's a great opportunity to get access to something that might otherwise break the bank. Um, so I, I highly recommend volunteering, um, not only as somebody who hosts events and benefits from volunteers, but also um, as somebody who has been one, it's just it's the best way to find your footing in the scene. Um, with that being said, there is added responsibility and there is a level of leadership that actually falls on volunteers. Um, you know, and Miss Jen was kind of touching base on that right before she sneezed, burped. What did you do? You burped. Yeah. Right before she burped, I think she was going to talk about um, what, uh, what power volunteers have because volunteers – Spoiler alert, have quite a bit of it, especially if they're booth runners. Michelle, why don't you shed some light on the topic? What are you burping right now? Do you need more time? I'm fine. Oh, Just I wasn't sure. Waiting you waiting for you to stop talking. You raised your eyebrows, <laughs> so I wasn't sure if you were going to burp again. Uh, you burp one time. Okay. 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately you are going to have volunteers who volunteer to run tasting booths and things like that with intentions that are not so pure. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it might even be just to kind of show off or worse than that to, to hunt or prey upon people who are newer. Um, I, in every volunteer meeting that I have before the two parties that I run that have tasting booths, I remind everybody, not just the booth runners, but everybody who is a volunteer, which could include people who are brand spanking new, right? Because like, like you talked about, it's a great way to get into the scene and help out and meet people and, and see the behind the scenes stuff. Um, but I remind everybody that them just being a volunteer at the event and a newbie walking into the dungeon, there is automatically a power differential there without even trying because somebody who's coming in brand new is looking around and they're seeing, oh, okay, so I see all these people who are here just to attend, but then there's these volunteers, even the ones that are doing kind of behind the scenes stuff, taking out trash and, 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 you know, dishes and helping with setup and cleanup. They're still to that newbie. They have no idea how long that person's been in the scene, but here they are volunteering, right? They're a part of the crew, so to speak. And especially those who are running tasting booths. They're going, okay, so they've been vetted enough to run a booth. Um, You know, they must be pretty good at what they do. They've got experience. So before any volunteer or booth runner has even opened their mouth, there is a power differential there. Um, And I remind my volunteers of this because even without doing it on purpose, that power differential can be taken advantage of. And so I want before every party them to think about the fact that they're already holding some power and to not take advantage of that. Um, You know, I try to tell my volunteers, like, look, if somebody reaches out to you and they're like, oh, my gosh, I went to your tasting booth at Awakening or Edge or whatever. Um, It was amazing. I really want to do a scene with you or will you be my dominant? I am a brand new sub or whatever. I tell them, look, treat it as as more like a mentorship as opposed to, ooh, fresh meat. Um, You know, tell them, you know, hey, I really appreciate the fact that you love the tasting. I'm so glad you had a great experience. Here's some other classes you might be interested in. Um, or, you know, if you come back next month, there might be some other people leading the booth. It's always good to get multiple experiences with different people, but to treat it from that perspective, as opposed to, oh, I have, you know, hooked somebody, they took the bait. Now I have an in and I'm going to run with it with, you know, anybody who has fun at my booth. Like that's, that's not what we want. (laughs) And Unfortunately, you can't always vet those things out in the beginning, although what I try to do at least is to pay attention to their actions or people coming to me about their actions um, and kind of going from there and figuring out what to do in those situations. 
Yeah. Um, finally, on the topic of volunteers, I would add that volunteers have an obligation to be as welcoming, kind, and um, just awesome, really, as possible, because volunteers are ushering in all levels of the scene, especially volunteers are going to be a big impact on newbies. And newbies may be the community members of tomorrow. Um, and we just we cannot afford to chase them away or to scare them or to give them a bad time um, simply because somebody has an ego or is snappy or rude. Um, so I definitely would say that volunteers have that added obligation of being extra friendly and honestly having a level of customer service. Um, and this is the thing, volunteers aren't being paid. So the lure of volunteering, as Ms. Jen mentioned, might be different for different people. Um, yeah. And I've definitely seen the positives. I've, I've, I love it when I get the positive feedback from newbies who tell me, you know, I was so nervous when I got to the party, I was there five minutes and was like ready to turn around, but volunteer so-and-so came up to me and started talking to me and made me feel so much more comfortable. I ended up staying. I had a great time. Like, these are the kinds of messages that show me, that give me actual proof that a volunteer, no matter what their position, can make a huge difference and make or break a brand new person's experience and journey. Yeah, so kudos, shout out to all the volunteers. Um, and in case we you love didn't, you. We do. In case you didn't know, it's actually a tradition in the community, especially if, for instance, you're running a house, which is where we're about to talk about that in a second, but many houses and many institutions or organizations or families in the community will emphasize community service and volunteerism as a way of giving back, um, which is the perfect segue into the next rung, uh, people who create houses and who do mentorship. And I think we'll tackle first mentorship and then go into creating houses, if that's all right with you, Ms. Jen. Sure. Speaking of houses, why don't you join us at our house, which is my way of saying the discord server that we run it's like our house where we live online in and all our friends visit and it's great it's mostly just me that's not true myself. i get on there and there's plenty of, you know this is a terrible advertisement <laughs> no i mean not by myself it's, like it's me and all notes. of our friends and listeners and then you just like pop in and you're like yo party people and then you leave for months at a time i don't leave for months at a time i leave for like one minute and then i come back uh-huh. ridiculous anyways join our discord server this is our call to action to join our discord server oh, are we recording this yes <laughs> this was the app this was the discord server we have fun yeah. we have a lot of fun on discord just like we this. say good morning and good night and we talk about all the things and just today we were discussing ice cream i mean if that doesn't get them there you already blew it you already blew the ad <laughs> don't try to don't try to, make it, don't try to save this all right well discord is fun Back, K is for kinky. Back Come to the hangout. <laughs> back to the regularly scheduled program. It was a mess. <laughs> so mentorship is a really important, um, but not as often seen publicly anymore facet of the community. Um, mentorship is basically what it sounds like. And it is a level of leadership that for me is one of those first big steps into a serious mantle of leadership that somebody can take on um, because a mentor is pairing themselves with people who need guidance 
and may possibly even be paired with newer people. And our, our, their job is to help shape that person, to give them tools and resources and to impart to that person how they should conduct themselves and how they should behave. Um, a mentor is a really important person in the scene. And um, it's almost to some, it, it is a spectrum. We were just talking about this earlier. It is a spectrum um, of what, what, you, what you can expect from a mentor and as a mentor what you should give. But generally speaking, you need to have a, be a person with integrity. You need to have integrity in order to be a good mentor. And you need to be willing to put a lot of time and energy into the mentee because you're essentially taking them under your wing and you're guiding them. Um, I don't have much more to say about that other than it's a huge responsibility mm-hmm. that one should not take lightly. Yeah, and I just want to throw in trainer just because by the way I say mentor and you say mentor I don't know who's right I think I am um you're probably right I just (laughs) leave me alone I just I talk funny leave me alone um but I want to mention trainer just because and I'm not talking about the pet play realm of trainer I'm talking about um as opposed to going to or asking somebody to be your mentor going to somebody and asking for specific training, uh, for example, training in maybe a certain hard skill, if you are on the top side, um, or maybe even asking for training as an S type, um, just in terms of, of general skills to have, uh, and things like that. Because I think that those are the types of if you put them under the umbrella of mentorship, those are the types of, of configurations or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The types of, I'm just going to say setups. Um, <laughs> this is not the word. It's fine. You understand. Um, but these are the types of things that might not take as much time and energy. It might not be something where you're talking on a regular daily, weekly basis. Um, maybe you're just getting together once every couple of weeks to train in the skill you are looking for. Or maybe it's even a, a one weekend training like it, it, that can take on a little bit more of a casualness. Um, but I think when we're talking about mentorship, we are talking about something that, at least in my view, should be given the time and energy it deserves, um, especially if it's something that does include not only maybe some training, but also really that guidance, um, you know, passing down wisdoms if you will that the mentor has has picked up over time and also learning from that mentee and and having that kind of you know reciprocal relationship would you call them nuggets of wisdom that are being passed down or pearls would you call them wisdom nuggets or wisdy nugs really wisdy nugs really um but on a more serious note uh mentors obviously, and trainers underneath that umbrella have an immense amount of responsibility and an immense amount of power because they might be training newer, new, new people to become the leaders of tomorrow. A mentor is a form of leader 100%, and I don't believe you can enter into being a mentor without knowing that. Unlike other types of leadership where you might accidentally fall up into leadership, you don't accidentally stumble into being a mentor. That is a decision you make that is conscious and you know when you do it, you're taking on the responsibility of training another person. Um, And that is huge. Um, I also want to talk about the dark side of mentorship. Um, There are some people I've seen who are 
calling themselves mentors and who advertise themselves as mentors and they're seeking mentees. Um, and I believe they're doing it because they're name collecting and they want to kind of grow themselves up and boost their own egos and their own um, persona in the scene. And I think it's kind of easy to see who's doing this when you talk to the mentee and you find out that they're not really actually working a lot with the mentor. They're not getting as much guidance as they thought they'd be. Um, or if it's just name only, it's just on FetLife, a mentor and a mentee, but there's nothing else going on. Um, you know, another dark side aspect of mentor, being a mentor, sorry, <laughs> being a mentor, um, is, you know, when somebody is mentoring somebody and they enter into a romantic, sexual or DS relationship with them. Um, this, I, I'm calling it dark side, but it's more of like the gray area of being a mentor. Um, people do talk about it being unethical, and I think there is definitely an argument to be had that it is not ethical for a mentor to date their mentee. Um, but there is also a valid argument that there are ways for it to be done ethically. Um, it's just interesting to note uh, there's a lot of conundrums that automatically present themselves when it comes to mentorship because mentorship is so very similar to DS. Even if it's not a technical DS relationship, I think there is a reason why that's an option listed on FetLife that you can claim. Um, and mentorship was historically a really big part of how tops were trained and S-types alike entering the scene. I think it used to be more common um, to see it because that was the way that our community passed down its traditions, values, and protocols to newer people. And we see mentorship not disappearing but being less and less visible because there's less and less, um, I feel, overlap between older generations of kinksters and newer ones who would have naturally formed these mentorship connections. But I want to advocate for coming back with mentors. And also, um, I also want to say, if you want to be a mentor, ask yourself why. Ask yourself what you have to give and what you're willing to do. Um, and make sure that you're picking mentees that you want your name attached to and vice versa. If you're a mentee and you're picking a mentor, Make sure you vet them and that you want to be attached to them and, and know who they are. Um, let's move up the ladder from mentors and trainers to people who create houses. I also want to just lump under the category as I pass this off to Miss Jen of people who create houses. We're also talking about people who form families and packs. And I'm just going to generically call that forming a house for the sake of brevity on the podcast. Or other words that people use. Yes. Um, and just the definition very fast. You'll often see D types form houses. Um, and a house is a usually comprised of a leader, aka the D type who formed it. Um, and then a hierarchy below that leader. Sometimes it's very straightforward. The leader, the D type is at the head and then everyone else is directly beneath them and reports directly to them. Um, a house like this is often structured of a D type and several S types. Sometimes they will literally live in an actual house together, but more often than not, it's a house in metaphor. Um, they don't live together, but they are together and they, they all they serve the same person and they may attend events together and do lots of things together and have lots of overlap. Similar to the concept of like chosen family. Yeah, very similar to that. Um, there's also other structures where there'll be a D type in charge of the house, but then they will have um, switches or other D types underneath them and then beneath that S type. So there's more complex hierarchy and there are even cases where there are more than one D type or more than one person running a house. So actually, you'll see couples running a house, an S-type and a D-type running a house together. You see lots of different configurations. But the point is, it is exactly like chosen family with a change. The 
implication with a house and the point of a house in the scene, to my understanding, is that the house is forming out of necessity and out of a desire to not only have shared values, but to train and bring up people with those values and to contribute to the community and to impact the community. Houses typically shouldn't just be for the ego of the D-type running it. They should be actively doing things to preserve and to expand BDSM culture. Do you think that's fair? That's an ideal, by the way. Remember we talked about ideal versus reality? This is yeah, what we're about no, the I think ideal. that's fair in terms of ideal with houses. I think that can change. That definition can change a bit when you're looking at when people will say families um, rather than houses. They'll say my my chosen family or my what's the other word pack um, is another pack one. yeah so a lot of times in those circumstances um there might not be the same attention given to like training and things like that it may literally be more of a this is my chosen family and there is no hierarchy here it's just a group of people who have become close and who probably do share a lot of values and things like that um who all spend time together etc and have each other's back and so it may or may not have as much focus on sort of the the training aspect that a house might again a house may not either but that's going to depend on person to person so yeah yeah and as far as houses go i can't stress enough how much responsibility a person actually assumes and how much of a leader somebody has to be to actually lead and manage a house successfully. Houses should not be done flippantly. Um, I've seen a house manual before. This house must have taken 40 plus hours even just to structure the manual alone. Um, There's hierarchy within it. There's also um, a slogan, a saying, um, you know, a shield, a motto, thank you. Um, And there are a shared core set of values, one of them being self-education and educating the community and serving the community. To actually manage a house like that, that means you as the leader are not only responsible for, you know, just putting the house together in the first place, you're responsible to the people in your house. They come to you. You're essentially entering into a DS dynamic with multiple people. And I ask you, before you even think about picking out your you know, house shield, are you skilled enough, humble enough, and capable of being in a successful DS dynamic with more than one person? I I have to say the number of D types I see who are completely alone, they have no one in service to them, and who just have a house that they've made because they feel like it, you should form a house because you actually have something to give where you need a house. Like if you're a single person walking around and you're not even able to manage a single DS relationship, you shouldn't be thinking, let me get many people in my house. You should be focusing on self and on whatever it is that you're going to be building. But I don't know. Well, and I was going to say, it's not like, if you are, let's say, a D-type who is poly and has a couple of partners, that's not by itself reason to start a house. <laughs> like, you don't... That's it's, not not, a, it's not a fan club. It's not a fan club. It's not to boost your ego, which is, I think, where a lot of it 
comes from that we see. It's, it's, oh, well, if I say I have a house, I'm going to look more important and maybe I'll draw in more people and I'll get more action. And I think that, unfortunately, that's a line of thought that I think happens probably a lot more than we even realize. Um, and I think that we want to maintain the integrity of houses that are built upon values and, and community and giving back and being in that reciprocal exchange with the world around you, um, as opposed to, I'm going to make a house cause then like, it's cool. Um, <laughs> well, and the thing is, and this is like, we kind of talk about this a little bit in part two of take me to your leader. So tune in for that, um, next week, but Unfortunately, there is no barrier for entry when it comes to making a house. There's no barrier for entry really on any of these rungs outside of time and getting to know enough people. And of course, your charisma, your ability to inspire people to follow you. I I, I get the allure. I understand. Honestly, I have a strong suspicion that it's because with vampires and like vampire culture, there are covens. So like some people are just so into the gothic romanticized vampire like lean on BDSM that they're like I will form my own coven and it will be sexy and it it shall be my house and I get to make a sigil and I am very medieval and this is very fancy like I totally get wanting to fantasize and have these things and like memorialize yourself as like the god of your own like castle but if you're not capable of managing other people if you can't even manage your own shit you shouldn't be stepping into a leadership position like this. Um, and I think that the integrity of houses in general has almost entirely been lost to time. I, I worry a little bit, but not too bad, because I think that there are still houses out there and people who are operating with the system who do it, do it, do it good. They do it proud. So you're always going to have a mix of people. Um, but I definitely do some side eye on people who are just trying rapidly to recruit people into their house as opposed to taking their time to build something so that they can give back to the community, which I personally think all houses should um, have a plan to do is to give back so the community can live on forever for others and forever. Um, so that's houses. I do want to pause briefly to talk about something that I think doesn't get spoken of enough which is the level of responsibility and leadership on D-types. And the reason I say it doesn't get spoken about enough is because the most common way that we hear this conversation come up in the scene is when we talk about newbies who have no experience calling themselves dominant or master or mistress. The community complains, jokes about, and is constantly bickering over whether or not honorifics should have meaning, basically, um, or whether they are simply titles we can take on our whim um, and that are more about our identities and our personal way of wanting to, to be known than they are about like, I don't know, hierarchy and shit, right? Um, this is a really important topic though, because I think the feeling behind people saying you shouldn't call yourself a dominant unless you have been around long enough to actually know what that means and are capable of being that thing. The reason that that sentiment makes sense is because when somebody identifies as a dominant, a level of power and leadership is assumed of them. 
automatically. And now, if you've been around long enough, you've already learned that that assumption is often incorrect and that there are a lot of asshats walking around calling themselves dominant or master or mistress, and that's kind of the running joke. But the reason it's frustrating is because ideally, a dominant should be somebody who has already mastered at the very least, like how to have good integrity, how to be kind, how to be confident, and how to steer people right. A dominant should have their own shit together and they should be able to lead others. And to me, that sounds a hell of a lot like what I would expect from a leader. So even though technically speaking, dominants aren't really on this leadership rung after all, because there are just way too many people walking in who are brand new calling themselves this, I want to acknowledge that the ideal for a dominant, I would, I would ideally put dominance somewhere around this rung of leading a house and mentorship. I would ideally put dominance around the same, the same level. I would expect that. And, and that's why I actually don't believe that a new person, a consumer, or like a very early, early in community member who has very little experience, I don't believe that they should be calling themselves a dominant unless somehow they've already demonstrated the qualities necessary to claim that title. Yeah, I think, you know, D-types are in the position of leadership. It's just on a smaller, more individual scale. Some people would argue that being responsible over even one other human is the greatest responsibility anyone can take. Um, so D-types have an immense amount of responsibility, ultimately, period. Uh, I think that that deserves to be mentioned on this ladder. What we're going to do now, though, is climb on up to teachers, which, Miss Jen, take us away on the wonderful world of teachers and <laughs> what their responsibilities are the ideal versus what actually happens and also like what they're not responsible for and what powers they gain when they level up what powers they gain <laughs> I, I don't okay um so i remember when i came into the scene and i was just going to a ton of classes as a consumer and i never knew I mean, unless I had gone to a class by that teacher before, I never knew exactly what I was going to get, right? Um, I was newer to the scene, and I would just go because I figured, at the very least, I'll meet other people, which is true. Um, but I think a big thing for people to remember, too, who are going to classes is you're going to take what works for you, and you're going to leave the rest. And... Also to keep in mind that this is not a university, <laughs> like some people might call themselves a university, but we're not accredited um, in the King scene. The classes you're going to in the general main like community, um, I, you know, I'm not talking about going to, you know, kink classes that are offered through an accredited whatever um, but for the most part, just sort of the general community education that happens, there's not credentials that people have to get. There's not a certain amount of college credits, right? And so part of it is the teachers who are getting up there and teaching are hopefully doing it to pass along knowledge or skills that they have learned or figured out over the years of some hopeful experience, right? Um, and 
so keeping that in mind, um, I think, you know, becoming an educator in the kink scene, there isn't something that you have to go through. At most, you might have some vetting that occurs if you are teaching, you know, sort of under someone else's umbrella or through, uh, you know, a club or whatever, a dungeon, and they might do some vetting. See our vetting episode, episode number two, for more information on that. Oh, a lovely uh, little commercial. Um <laughs> Uh, so, so they might do some vetting, um, or they might not do a ton of vetting depending on what, what it is. So, and I'll, I'll explain kind of from my perspective, um, you know, as a, as somebody who does teach, um, when I started teaching, it was based on my experience, right. And coming into the scene and, and all that kind of stuff. Some of the classes that I teach, um, also come from just my experience of being a therapist, um, and just sort of taking that knowledge and combining it with more kink situations. Um, but I also host classes and in hosting classes, I'm hosting other teachers and, you know, a lot of teachers that are teaching now may not have been able to teach if they had started at a club, for example, that requires vetting of past classes um, because they wouldn't have any. So something that I've really been an advocate for, for myself, and I take this on as responsibility, is to allow new teachers to get their, get their firsts in. Um, you know, I still ask for information. I just don't have somebody saying, Hey, Jen, I want to teach a class on this thing. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I mean, and now you're kind of getting actually into the event coordination and teacher coordination side of this. And I, I want to get us back on, but I want to oh. come back to this piece. Um, when we're dealing with teachers, what Ms. Jen's pointing out is that they don't have consistent training, but there are many teachers who are incredibly gifted and there are also people who are brand new who are getting their bearings. And then there, are, of course, are teachers who are problematic, who've been teaching for quite some time. And their name alone and their, um, I don't know, social status has allowed them to continue teaching. But they're not necessarily hitting their audiences very well anymore. Um, possibly, as I've mentioned in the vetting episode, because they are still spouting things that sound a bit racist, sexist, transphobic, etc. Um, you know, but when it comes to the power that teachers have and the responsibility, it's a lot. It's not exactly the same, I feel, in terms of, like, level of leadership when you compare, like, what a D-type owes their S-type necessarily, but it's still a form of leadership when you're teaching because – a whole class of people is sitting there and if any of them are new or any of them don't know the source material or don't understand outside of what you're teaching them what they're hearing, they might just take your word for gospel. <laughs> that's a lot of power. Um, that's a lot of responsibility that teachers have. Um, so as Ms. Jen mentioned, anybody can become a teacher, but a good event coordinator or a good venue will vet teachers so that the people who are sitting in front of their audience actually should be teaching. Occasionally, some weird ones get through. 
especially if you're like Miss Jen and you're giving people a first chance, you might get somebody who's just not strong at teaching yet. Like their, their teaching skills are still being developed. I've been one of these people before. Um, or or you, you, you get people who just, they flop. Um, their, their outline was good, but they themselves weren't or they couldn't actually handle answering questions or anything like that, you know? So that happens occasionally, but for the most part, um, what you want to see uh, are, are teachers who have done the work, who know what they're talking about, who can give you source materials, and who will be able to answer questions and admit what they don't know. Um, I, I like teachers who are kind to audiences, who have some level of humility. Um, honestly, all the traits that I want in a good leader, I want in a good teacher. Um, because Ms. Jen kind of got off to it already, she got off to it, um, I want to move right past teachers um, into event coordinators. And I want to talk first about education coordinators, and then we'll talk broader about hosting a party or an event. So Ms. Jen, why don't you talk about education coordinators as you are one, basically. When you're somebody like me who likes to give opportunities to those who have not had a bunch of teaching experience in the kink world, at least, um, there's, there's, you know, only so much vetting you can do. Um, and why I also think that the idea of taking the pieces that work for you and leaving the rest is also very important to understand that you're going to get different things from different teachers and hopefully at least one little nugget that you can take away from it. Now, granted, I've been in classes where that's not been the case, but most of the time there's something you can take away. Um, in trying to coordinate other teachers to come in and teach, I do my best to um, at least, you know, I ask the person if I have no other classes to, to pull from, if this is their first time teaching. One thing is usually I know them as a human, usually, not always. Sometimes they might be referred to me by somebody else, but usually that person, at least I know. Um, on top of that, I ask them, you know, not only what is the topic you'd like to teach, what is, you know, what is it that you're coming in with experience or what have you that you think you want to teach this, but also can I see your outline? Can I see your notes and things that you want to go over? And then we kind of go from there. Um, for the most part, I have been very fortunate in that whatever my way of doing this has been, it has resulted in most of the teachers that I host being wonderful. You know, if somebody was just really nervous or they're just not totally comfortable with teaching yet, but their material was really good and they have good energy, I have no problem bringing them back to continue to hone that skill. If there are some things that need to be given as feedback but the teacher is not willing to hear that feedback then that for me as as an educational host is a red flag that I won't have that person back if they're not willing to listen to feedback and to make adjustments uh not and I'm not saying like if they're an expert in something and I'm coming in and I want to pretend to be more of an expert and I'm going to tell them how to change their shit that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about legitimate concerns in terms of how they conducted the class. And if somebody's not willing to receive that feedback, that's definitely a red flag. This is a really great example of looking behind the scenes for a second at what an event coordinator or rather a education coordinator 
who is really focused on doing their job well, what it can look like. This, this section speaks to what teachers should expect from coordinators and what teachers owe coordinators and what coordinators owe teachers. And um, so hopefully this has been kind of insightful into the amount of responsibility and work that goes into being a coordinator. Um, finally, we're getting up this ladder onto throwing parties and event coordination. Um, and then we're going to go right above that to owning a dungeon, and that's going to be the top of our ladder. Talking about party hosting and munch hosting, um, these are the things that people do that put them into an actual direct direct leadership role, whether they wanted it to or not. Um, and yeah, like I'm mind boggled on how to even continue talking about this because it's such a broad topic. But basically, when somebody wants to run a party, the barrier for entry is having to have a venue that wants you there. You have to convince a venue to let you host your event. Um, You then have to make sure that you have DMs for your event. You have to organize the flow of the event, all of the details for the event. Many party hosts spend so much out-of-pocket money, you don't even realize it, on getting events off the ground. I mean, we're talking losing $1,000 to start off an event or more. Um, They also have to coordinate if they have volunteers, volunteers. If they need to pay people, they have to coordinate how to pay people. They usually have to give a cut of what they make to the event um the 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 event owner the venue yeah um many party hosts don't see profit some do um it just depends on the type of party and how much of a cut they take home um and how many people show up right um but what most party hosts i think who start this stuff don't realize is that once you start hosting parties you are finally considered in the eyes of almost every community member a fully fledged leader um, and if something goes wrong at one of your events, or if somebody does something wrong after leaving your event, you will likely be the person that is told about that. And that is as it should be. The event host needs to know when things go wrong at their event or following their event. Um, but on top of being told about it, event hosts are often expected to help mediate the conflict. And that is stuff that event hosts don't always realize is going to happen until it happens, but I guarantee you that it will. So for me, the official leadership title falls heavily on event coordinators and on um, venue owners and runners, which we'll get to in a second. But Ms. Jen, why don't you speak a little bit about people who run parties or who run multiple parties like yourself and what that's like as a leader? I mean, I would say... Are we are we throwing in munches and other events or let's throw parties? in munches too because the yeah. same rule is well, true for munches. What I was going to say is that if you're if you're only hosting, let's say a munch, you are still stepping into leadership, and if something goes down at or after, uh, or maybe before that that munch, you will be the person typically that people will come to and expect some kind of mediation. Um, it might be a little less risky in that there's no play happening um, at a munch, usually. Um, so if that's the case, you may have less, you know, coming at you in terms of, you know, consent violations. Although you could, uh, it just might not be play related. But the the number of complaints will probably be less than if you're running any kind of party. Um Running a party, running multiple parties, um, you know, it's it's a huge responsibility, 
Eden's already gone over kind of the responsibility of creating these events and how much time and energy and money uh, goes into this. But on top of that is the responsibility of having to drop what you're doing and deal with an issue that comes up. You know, somebody has a problem with somebody or something happened at your party um, or like Eden said, even, you know, right after your party, if they met at your party, but it something happened the next day or whatever it might be, you are typically the person that they are going to come to and expect something, right? They, they, they come to you and they expect some kind of whatever it might be, whether it's compensation, you know, I hated your party, <laughs> I want my money back, or if it's actually mediating an issue of, you know, a consent violation or somebody who weirded them out, um, you know, you're expected to step in and not only create space for the person coming to you, but also to do your due diligence in figuring out what a fair outcome would be. And, you know, these types of situations can be anywhere from, you know, okay, a couple of emails, a couple of phone calls were done to literally months of just taking over your life. That escalated so, quickly. Well, yeah. And anything in between. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that is a piece and, it's only when it starts happening that they go, oh, shit. I guess this does <laughs> fall on me. Um, we do talk a little bit in part two of this episode about the idea of leaders only performing their job titles and nothing more. Um, but that's not really leadership. And I don't, as much as we talk about that, honestly, if you're going to be an event host or an event coordinator where you're managing many events, you have an absolute responsibility to provide leadership. Now, what that leadership looks like and how much of your energy and time that entails, that's kind of to be determined. Um, but I want to throw that out there and we'll finally end this episode on the, the top of the rung, so to speak, which is people who own venues or are managing venues where they rent, right? Some dungeons they rent, they don't own. Um, but the idea basically is somebody who runs a dungeon. That is essentially one of the highest levels of responsibility you can have and automatically it places you at the top of the leadership level because you're managing a space that feeds the entire community and you are responsible for everything that happens in that space you're responsible for dms and stocking with dms you're responsible for your people that you hire and how they treat community members and participants and consumers and what have you your volunteers the volunteers you're responsible for basically everything and most dungeon owners are also community members themselves. They care deeply about the community. And those are certainly the dungeons that I prefer to frequent are ones that are community oriented and run by community or run for community. Um, that's the ideal of what to expect from a, somebody who runs a dungeon is that that person is heavily involved in community and is a proven leader who deserves to be in that leadership position and who is able to function as a leader, right? That's the ideal. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but that's not always what happens. You don't have to be a good person. 
you don't have to be somebody who is a good leader. You can be a predator and open a dungeon. And as long as you are able to hide your nature or hide your history from enough people, you may be successful. Um, I, I really detest that this is true. I hate that people with poor integrity um, or who are buying their way into, into the community because they don't feel comfortable just participating in it. Um, I hate that that's a way that dungeons get opened. Um, one, it's foolish. Dungeons are very easy to ruin. And financially speaking, it's very difficult to keep a dungeon afloat. Um, and the, it's just a very, it's a very tricky business. Opening a dungeon is one thing, keeping it open is another. Um, you know, but what I think we should expect from people who own dungeons is a lot. I also think it's important to mention, though, that unfortunately, not all dungeon owners or dungeon runners are real community members, and some have histories and pasts of abusive behavior. Um, it's important to understand the history of our dungeons. In Los Angeles in particular, we have dungeons popping up and falling down way too often. Um, I think it's good to vet dungeons, um, but I do I do want to say that I'm, I'm so proud of our home dungeon, Sanctuary LAX. I, I love the way that Mistress Sayan, you know, leads. I think she's a good leader, a good example of a leader. Um and I think that as long as dungeons are always working to better themselves and to be a safe community space, they're a great contribution to our community as a whole, to the BDSM world. And there can really be no, no more important task than doing a good job leading a dungeon. A lot of people altruistically want to lead yeah, or they want to help. We didn't mean to scare anybody off. No. <laughs> and, like, it's not just predators who want to lead. It's also, like, good leaders who want to lead. It's a good quality to want to step into leadership. Um, and I think it's also important to acknowledge that on every rung, there is at least some level of responsibility towards community. You know, I would, again, I would argue that, like, if we use the word leadership to be synonymous with having power, then a lot of the rungs have leadership elements. But I would really say, again, that, like, I see event hosts and up as, like, without doubt leaders. And mantles of leadership are varying degrees of responsibility with leadership kind of trickling down and then kind of stopping off at, a, at around probably community member. I think community members can be leaders, um, but there's not as much of an onus there. There's more so a responsibility to be kind to each other. We can all do that in every rung of this ladder. We're going to unpack next episode um, the ways in which we've seen these rungs be climbed uh, in a more mismanaged fashion. We'll get more in depth, too, about what it takes to do well in some of these roles. So if you're really fascinated by this topic, um, tune in next week. Or if you hate this topic and are like, this was the longest episode of all time, then please skip ahead to the next next week um, because we're only doing a two-parter on this one. So we appreciate your listenership. <laughs> yeah. Your listenership? I don't know. I was going to say watcher, viewership, but viewership isn't correct. They're listening. They're listenership. We are thankful for thine ears. Thank you.